Right now, let's bring in the uh, executive director, Megan's Law, also running for a, a state senatorial post in the first uh, district. Primary, by the way, three weeks from tomorrow. You know her well. Laura Ahern uh, joins us. We say a very good morning to you. Good morning, Jay Oliver. I'll tell you, I haven't seen uh, times like this ever. You know, just analyzing over the weekend, 41 million people out of work. A pandemic globally. Businesses uh, in complete disarray, even more so now, around the country after the last four days. Unrest uh, in all our major cities, in our own state. We look at things right now in a, kind of a chaotic deal, although I can't figure out why the governor didn't call the National Guard like others. Can't figure that one out after what happened last night in Brooklyn as well as in and around New York City. Laura Ahern, give me your take. Let's start with Minnesota ramifications and everything else in our own region as well. Well, I think we all have um, everyone in, in, in America and probably across the whole entire world seeing that video watched in horror um, as that man, George Floyd's life, was taken from him. And, and the ramifications and... What's happening now is completely understandable, that for so many years we have stood by, and although we've seen a lot of change to um, change the culture, as you and um, Elaine Gross just talked about, it hasn't been enough, obviously, right, because of what we just saw happen. However, um, in no way are any of us, including me, condoning any type of violence outside folks coming in to try to agitate and uh, try to change the message because there are very peaceful protests that are going on out there that bring hope to folks like me who I'm a social worker, an attorney, and in our Crime Victim Center we represent um, the most vulnerable that don't have a voice. So I can understand in my position in working with folks that are traditionally underrepresented, I can understand their outrage. And um, you and Elaine um, had a great conversation earlier. But we, we, we have to, it's, it's not enough to, to keep talking about this, right? We have to make changes. And again, you guys had spoken about some changes, but we have to make changes, I believe, that start at our real young aged children. So a classroom really does present an opportunity to teach children that we are different, but we're all the same. We all want to be happy. We all want opportunity. We all want to succeed. We all want to be accepted and part of a group. And, you know, I was appointed to the Suffolk County Hate Crimes Task Force as the crime victim's representative after Marcelo Lacero was hunted down and murdered. And that was a real dark time here in Suffolk County when that happened. But I have to tell you, the, the folks in the, <clears throat> excuse me, the folks in the community and law enforcement and um, elected officials and policymakers, we all came together and we were looking for solutions. What can we do to target institutional racism? What can we do to ensure that we have equity in uh, health care, in housing, um, in our educational system? But it still comes down to there's not enough action that's been taken generally in our society. And I'm going to share a little bit of information I think 
This is where it all starts, when we start talking about who we are and who our families are and any um, experiences we've personally had. I, my mom and her side of the family are Spanish. I'm half Spanish. And I saw firsthand how folks in my family, um, I don't look Spanish, but folks in my family, and how we were treated differently when my grandmother, who has a very heavy accent at the time, she's now passed, but she's Latina. And she was treated differently because of that. So when we would go to stores, it was, it was, it's hard to explain because people, when they hear that, they think, oh no, that can't happen. But it happened. It happened to me. And you can imagine if it's just happened to me because I'm with my family who um, looks different and speaks differently, you can imagine what life might be like for folks who, based on the color of their skin, are treated differently. Um, whether it's economically in our healthcare system, our educational system. And even we recently made some big changes on a state level in the criminal justice system, right? That was bail reform. We changed the economic inequity with bail reform. However, there were a lot of things that then had to be changed after that. And we've spoken about that, that there still needs to be judges' discretion. There was a lot of crimes added. But these are things that we're doing as a culture to really get to the root of the problem, as you and Elaine were just talking about. But I really do believe that education is really the place, if you want to get to the core of institutional racism, if you want a culture change, you have to get to the core. And it's our children. We're not born um, to be prejudiced or to discriminate. We're not born that way. So our children are learning that along the way. So what we need to do is use our schools as an opportunity to prepare future adults to work productively and harmoniously alongside others who represent different races and cultural groups and backgrounds and abilities and even sexual orientation. So I really would love and look forward to working with the education department because there's curriculum out there already that's, that's already been tried in many districts across the country that I think we can really target uh, institutional racism um, at its core. Now, back to where we are today, we have a lot of, uh, and I, I really want to stress this point, um, my husband's a retired chief of detectives in the police department. I work very closely, and my organization works very closely with this police department. This police department has, do- has done amazing things to develop relationships, as you and Lane were talking about a little while ago, it's really important for those relationships in a community to exist. And the Suffolk County Police Department and the men and women in blue in this county and in Nassau County, um, they have done tremendous work to develop those relationships and build trust. Now, what we saw, however, um, a man based, murdered, and then there not be the charges that, that we would expect, that's part of the solution, too. We need to ensure that where um, folks are accountable for what they're doing in our community. And when Newsday did their housing um, spread and they discovered and rooted out all of the, um, the steering away from various communities and the housing um, discrepancies here on Long Island, we need to see some now enforcement like beefed up. We'd like to see maybe a little bit more attention paid to those individuals that um, are supposed to be enforcing those rules. And, you know, we don't see that yet, but I know that there's um, still an investigation. But part of this um, equation is accountability. So we have to ensure that those folks that 
are out in the community that are responsible uh, for um, ensuring those that are breaking the rules and adding to institutional racism, that we actually work together to ensure that they um, are held accountable, those individuals that aren't following the rules. Which, by the way, and that's a key word, accountability, because we have not seen accountability in the state of Minnesota. If you go back 50 years, there is 50 years of not being held accountable. Listen, I go back even four years to the Philando Castile situation. The African-American killed in his car with his girlfriend right next to him. If you remember that right. on the traffic stop. So in yeah. essence, where's the accountability? Where's the leadership? We don't have any leadership, it seems. And I'll tell you another one. You said education. But I'll even go a step back as far as, Laura, this starts as parenting. A lot of this is parenting. we got to do a better job. You know, instill values. Part of the problem, and, and we talk about another key word, which is culture. The culture is... As you grow up in a household of racism, it is very hard to shed as one becomes older because those are the very beliefs that have been instilled. So all the education and everything else is great, but we have to do a better job as far as parenting overall, whether it's depression, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's sexual abuse, sexual harassment. Uh, This is all values that have been installed and we're not doing a good job of it, it seems, because individuals are growing up with that ineptitude of thinking. That's a carryover effect and it permeates like a disease and we have to change in a very big way. Exactly. But, you know, the problem is that we can't legislate morality. We can't legislate values um, of, for adults. And that's why I go back to what we can do is, and we're doing it now in the schools with um, some new laws that went into place that provide um, or that require education on sexual abuse prevention in the middle schools, beginning in the middle school. So we finally are starting to see that. Because when you expose youngsters to concepts that they're not exposed to at home, at the very least, even if their parents are, um, are um, not what we would expect, meaning that they're behaving in a way that um, uh, causes discrimination and prejudice and racism, at least we're exposing children who have, they're, they're not born to be prejudiced or, di- or to discriminate. So at least they're being exposed to the concepts of living in harmony and working with everybody, regardless of your race or ethnicity. So we have to start somewhere because you said it. We can't change uh, the values of an adult who feels differently. You know, and, and if we're being honest here as Americans, this is um, discrimination and prejudice is built in. It's just built in structurally um, in our institutions and and we all know it, and if we're honest, we, we can talk about solutions. So I really feel strongly we can solve the problem with beginning with our youngsters, but we have to start somewhere. We're not even doing that now. And um, as I said earlier, being on the Hate Crimes Task Force um, and trying to make some, some, some kind of changes in the county after what happened to Marcelo Lucero, we saw firsthand, we took testimony all around the county from folks who were suffering 
because of their ethnicity. They were suffering because they couldn't access health care or, um, or housing or um, the education that they felt that they needed for themselves and their children. So we have to start somewhere, and education is key, and we do that with the Crime Victim Center was called upon by the county to do um, a hate crime education and outreach program. And what we do is we teach, this, is, this isn't um, curriculum-based starting with young children like I'm proposing, but this is more when a hate crime occurs, we respond and we go into classrooms and teach teenagers what the implications are of the commission of a hate crime. That way they, they're not, um, you know, just going out, um, so certain kids going out into communities and thinking it's a big joke when they deface something with something that is, um, that is a racial epithet, that they understand the implications of that. It's not just about uh, defacing property, which is wrong in itself. It's also sending a very powerful message of fear to people in the community because of the color of your skin or your ethnicity that you're unsafe. And that's what's going on now. So that's what I'm saying. We got to start somewhere. Even if we we're talking um, to adults who aren't listening, at least we're starting with their children to introduce concepts that they're not hearing at home. I agree, and we got to keep that. We got to keep getting to these communities, uh, even uh, during COVID, uh, the crisis. You know, I thought we were a little bit late in response as far as, you know, the testing centers. Finally, they pop up in and around areas that we need them to pop up in because it's those of those communities that are suffering from corona, you see. And, and the messaging has been very poor from the get-go. And finally, we've we've ramped that up. But we, ha we have to do a better job, uh, not only in what we're seeing right now with racial unrest, We've got to get into these communities. We've got a message. We've got, you know, Sheriff Errol Tulin has done a great job uh, in Suffolk County. I remember from the get-go, he got out there. He had his officers get out there into the community, having conversations daily. That's what is needed all over this country. We have not done a good job. And I'll tell you, it, all, it comes down to leadership as well. And we have had very poor leadership. You've seen what happens in Minnesota. Okay, with the governor there who doesn't know what the heck he's doing. Okay, he doesn't know. And he's flip-flopping left and right. We have seen that with the president of the United States. Wherefore, though, I was Donald Trump over the weekend. Outside of being on Twitter and attacking big tech. You know, enough is enough. We need leadership. And it starts today. And it's rooting out. It's a cultural change that we have to have all of America. COVID-19, perfect example of what it's not like as far as making sure things are in place. Finally, you're seeing that now, but during this the pandemic, that is another example of this, Laura. It absolutely is, and, and we see, as you said, we see new testing sites that are popping up, and um, I think COVID-19 has really exposed our vulnerabilities um, as, a, as a culture and as a society here not only in New York State, but in, in our entire country. And the lack of leadership from the start or from the top has really trickled down. And look where we are now. We've lost so many lives. And, and now, because we have um, some good leadership, I, I feel very strongly that we've seen um, in the county and in the state initiatives that um, started out real early that resulted in a reduction 
in, um, in the amount of cases, but also we saw what happened in the nursing, home, nursing homes. From the very beginning, you and I were really working hard to try to get uh, those numbers released so we could see some transparency so that we could figure out what's going on, why are we... Why do we have such a problem in the nursing homes? And then, you know, we got down to the bottom of it with the directive that was passed with the lack of PPE. So now um, the attorney general is going to investigate. But when I get up to Albany, I want to start a uh, preparedness unit um, for pandemics. And I want to get to the bottom of what happened with the nursing homes. And I don't think we're going to get there um, right now. I think it's going to take some time. Because I think it has a lot to do with also the nursing homes themselves and how they're structured. And we have to take a look at were they getting access to the PPE or was it just being diverted to the larger institutions? All of that has to be addressed. We can't just point a finger at one individual. Certain people are blaming Trump. Uh, it wasn't early enough. Certain people are blaming, blaming Cuomo or um, even the county executive. And I think that we have to take a look at everything to understand what really happened in the nursing homes. But what we do know is over half of the folks that died in Suffolk County died in nursing homes or assisted care facilities. So obviously there's something really wrong. And we also have to now, you know, we have a lot of unrest and you said it earlier, we have a lot of unrest. We have, we're coming out of a pandemic. We have what just happened um, to George Floyd. There's just so much going on. Our small businesses are struggling we have to get back on track, Jay, and um, it starts with our small businesses opening. But I would really like to see the small businesses opening a little faster. I think that if you can go to Walmart and you can buy clothing in Walmart or even go to Walmart and buy chajka, why can't you go to some of our, some of our small businesses? They're just as eager to comply with what the rules are related to PPE and social distancing. We really need to open faster. Yeah, listen, and the one thing we can't do is is politicize this. Uh, you know, to to blame now. You know, to have the governor blame the president of the United States, please. You know, that's the reason now for the nursing homes and fifty seven hundred deaths in your state. Are you kidding me? Could you right. could you not? And you, and you know, it's again, it goes back to the word of being held accountable. Can I have a little accountability here for somebody on March twenty fifth on that edict of sending COVID positives back into those homes? Can I get a little accountability? You know, the yep. flip-flopping all throughout, blaming the the institutions themselves. You know, having them say, listen, if you can't handle a patient, contact the state. Where are you at, Governor Cuomo? Don't tell me you don't know policy as you've done twice during these briefings. And please don't don't go back to Dr. Deer in the headlights, Howard Zucker, for an answer. I can't handle that. Right now, we have to take charge and figure out here, folks, because it's all about the accountability. It's not about the polarization of parties right now. We can't have that. That's what you're seeing here. Blame this, blame that, and blame everybody. He's the one guy who said, you know what, I'm not going to get political, yet he got political by blaming the federal government for his antics during this. And, and that, to me, cannot be tolerated. I'll tell you that much. Well, now. that's why, that's why, Jay, I'm the best candidate for Senate District 1 and for Long Island and for New York State because I'm a person, and, and folks know me, I have a 20-plus year history of developing, uh, implementing, and managing real, real um, community-based programs that target specific issues in the community. 
We've reduced recidivism, sex offender recidivism, by 75% in a program that we work with, um, the police department and the county legislature um, and the community. We have reduced domestic violence arrests by 20%. We've educated nearly 200,000 children in schools. And remarkably, we've brought back over $6 million to crime victims to pay for their expenses related to crime. And it did not come from taxpayer money. It came from asset forfeiture money that comes from the federal government that's divvied out to all 50 states for crime victim funds. So we've had remarkable results, and that's because I'm a fighter. And you know me for a long time, and the community knows me for a long time. I have fought for our most vulnerable um, very successfully in this county for over two decades. And when I get to Albany, I'm going to be fighting for our fair share. we got to go back to that again, right, because... We're on a revolving budget. We don't have uh, revenue coming in. So what's going to start happening is we're going to start seeing cuts. And we need a strong voice in Albany. We need my voice in Albany to fight for our fair share. It starts right there. Because if we don't have the resources, we're not going to be able to pay for education. We're not going to be able to pay for government to operate, our firefighters, our law enforcement, all of these critical, the critical infrastructure of government. Let's start with that. We have to get that paid for, and right now, that's not looking good. So for someone like me who has the experience of working with, you know, everyone says both sides, working with everybody to ensure that we get accomplished what we want to get accomplished and we get paid for what we need in order to, to not only stimulate our businesses locally, but to survive. We're at a point where the governor is saying 20% cuts. Across the board. So I'm the one who's going to go to Albany and fight for us. I am not a career politician. I am not looking for, as a town council person, looking for elevation to become a state center. It's not about that. It's about I went to law school at night. You know I'm a social worker. I went to law school at night so that I could fight more effectively. So I'm dedicated and I'm committed. Five long years at night so I could get that law degree to fight, to use my law degree as a shield and a weapon for our most vulnerable. And now that's going to be to fight for Suffolk County and for Long Island. Wow. I'm, I'll tell you, I'm moved. I am moved with what you said. Now, I'll say this. I like what you said when you said together. Because I'll tell you, Laura, if you get up there, you have to be one of many who, you know, we talk about culture change and everything else. And it's just that. We have to work together. It's no longer Democrats versus Republicans. It's one. That's why officials, ladies and gentlemen, are elected to do the job, not to play the Super Bowl of politics all the time. We get enough of that in our sports world, right? Although we like to get something in our sports world these days. But we need government officials to work together to solve problems. Not to go back and forth and one-up one another. And that's what Laura, exactly. I believe, is saying. Her voice will lead to that change is what you're saying. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But, is, I mean, that's basically what you're telling all of us. Is that you hope to kind of change that culture. That culture that's permeating right now as far as racial unjust and everything else from a political standpoint... We need that same infusion. We need that change. That's a cultural change right there because we're not seeing it. We don't see it on state levels. We certainly don't see it on the federal level. 
nothing at all, right? Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, where are we at here? It can't be that anyway anymore. We need change. That no, is do, part of our problem in this country. And that's part of our problem in this state. I'll give you the final word. Go ahead. Exactly. You're, you're exactly 100% on there. And I am the one with a demonstrated history of being able to affect that change. So 20-plus years ago, I started that organization, the Crime Victim Center Parents for Megan's Law, literally from a room in my home when no one else would listen. So I am a person who has experienced trailblazing, doing new things to come together to affect great change that will benefit all of us. So I'm the one who, who can affect the change. And voters have to, I'm in the primary on June 23rd, um, voters have to speak. We're doing absentee ballots. Everybody got their absentee ballot application mailed to their home um, for primary voters. And they have to send it in so that they can get their ballot. Polls will also be open, but people have to vote for me. So this is a very unique situation. We're in a pandemic. Um, we have a lot of unrest in our community. And if people want to affect change, then they need to vote for somebody who's going to actually affect change. I'm not making promises I can't keep. I have demonstrated over 20 years that I can affect change. So they need to vote for me if they want change. Well said. And we will have many a conversation uh, even prior to the 20. By, by, by the way, you have early voting that's happening June 13th. Let's not forget that. Uh, right. You'll have that 13th through the 21st. And, of course, the big day. Hard to believe it's coming upon us three weeks uh, from tomorrow. Laura Aher, what a job she has done as an advocate and everything else. Megan's Law and, of course, running in that first senatorial. Uh, that's uh, Post, folks. They. Senator Ken Laval held for 44 years. Very interesting. Uh, can't thank you enough for a couple of minutes. You stay well now. Thanks. You too, Jay. And if anybody wants more information, they can go to ahern4statesenate.com.